Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome to Life After Dobbs. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm co-author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today, we'll talk with Leo Labresco Sargent, the author of Building the Benedict Option. She runs Other Feminisms, a substack exploring pro-life feminism. She's a convert from atheism to Catholicism, and her writing has appeared in 538, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and National Review. Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. That's my pleasure. So we have a lot of great topics to get into today, a lot about feminism and women and um, how abortion plays into all of that. But to start with, um, I'm hoping you could tell our listeners a bit about your recent New York Times op-ed um, about your experience with with ectopic pregnancy. And just if you could summarize kind of the, the argument of your piece a bit for us. Absolutely. I was writing about a pretty sad time in our life where we knew we were having a miscarriage and then we found out the baby we were losing was ectopic, was in my fallopian tube. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this piece is I think a lot of the questions about what life might look like after Dobbs are about, well, what's allowed? You know, under what circumstances is an abortion permitted? What does life of the mother look like? But it's always kind of from this perspective of everything is being taken away. And I wanted to focus on what can be given in these really hard cases where a mom's life is at risk. Because what meant so much to us is that we found a Catholic doctor, a pro-life doctor, who talked about our baby as a baby the whole time, who acknowledged that something really sad was happening, um, and who we knew was going to treat our baby's body respectfully. And that was a big change, even in how we'd experienced miscarriages where our children had died and you know, there was never a risk to me, there was never the possibility of a therapeutic abortion, but we were just visiting doctors who didn't treat our babies as real and sometimes were contemptuous of us for grieving. And a big thing I hope is that you know, in a world after Dobbs, in a world that, God willing, goes through a moral revolution, we have more compassion for children, including children who don't make it, and thus we're kinder to their families. Could you tell us a little bit about the responses that you received? Because um, I'm thinking back, I, I believe your piece was published on the 4th of July. And I know I had tweeted it out that morning saying, you know, what a powerful essay it was. And I made the mistake of tagging you in my tweet because then, like, the next day, a whole bunch of like, um, concerned trolls and um, I think bad faith actors on Twitter, you know, kept attacking the piece, attacking you, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I found many of the responses just to be over the top, um, but also somewhat revealing uh, in that they were really upset that you referred to your baby as a baby. They were really upset that you talked about um, your baby in terms that humanized and personalized the baby when they wanted to depersonalize and dehumanize it. And so I, I just, you know, interested in you sharing, you know, your reaction to some of those criticisms, but also did it open up any fruitful conversations? Because I, because I imagine maybe not so much via social media, um, but maybe, you know, privately via email, via direct message, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations um, that it might've actually opened up some fruitful conversations that, you know, frequently don't happen under the spotlight. They happen um, in privacy and intimacy. So could you share both sets of reactions? There were some good reactions to on social media. You're right. The proportion was wildly swung towards things that were pretty horrible. You know, but I did see some people reaching out to me about their own experiences, about how their doctors had treated them. I saw someone writing, you know, not tagging me, not 
directly writing to me just about their own experience as someone who's you know, in religious formation in um, a liberal denomination where people are often pro-choice and how much it had hurt that person hearing their own pastor talk about abortion in a way that was intended to support women. Yeah, that was very much the, it's a clump of cells, you know, it means nothing. Um, it's absurd to talk about this as a child when the person listening had experienced a miscarriage. You know, and it was just this moment of feeling so unsupported by their pastor who was working so hard you know, to take care of their flock by hearing their child diminished and their grief treated as essentially unreasonable, if not even worse, giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Yeah, it was a really a really fascinating reaction that I saw. And of course, I didn't see the, the positive interactions that you had. I assumed there must have been some, but um, people were just very enraged. And that always just drives me crazy, right? Because they are the very people who say personal experience is everything and tell your abortion story. And then suddenly you come along and, and tell a positive pro-life story about, you know, why you you know that you lost a baby and not a clump of cells. And, and their first reaction is to be um, very personally, I think, unkind and outraged by it. And that, that really bothered me. But in any event, thank you for sharing that um, that story, both with our listeners and with um, the New York Times readers. I, I'm sure it did a lot of good that we'll never see. Um, but to switch gears a bit, so in, in the second chapter of our book, um, Ryan and I write at length about how abortion harms women. And we focus a lot on um, sort of the physical effects of abortion on women who've had abortions, the psychological, the long-term psychological damage. Uh, but we also talk about how abortion harms all women, even women who haven't had abortions, um, because of the the way it fosters this culture that takes the male body as the norm or the ideal. And we we rely a lot on on our colleague Erica Bakiaki's work there. But can you flesh out this concept a little bit too and speak to your view of it? I love Erica's work. You know, I, I was delighted seeing it in your book, and I'm happy about the kind of broad lens you're taking on this. You know, I think one of the things that Erica emphasizes is that. Abortion is treated initially as an option, something that expands women's options, but it becomes something that's expected of women. You know, that every child a chosen child slogan implies any unchosen child is a problem, you know, a mistake that you made that you're responsible for addressing um, and something that we as a society are not going to support you or help you in. And you, know, you see that kind of in the ways that you see businesses saying, you know what, you know, we're not thrilled that you guys want to have kids, but we're really supportive of providing coverage for abortions, coverage for abortion travel. We're very happy to help you freeze your eggs. But have you considered just not having children while you work for us? Because that's extremely inconvenient for us. We're here to support you. We want you to be your best self, someone who doesn't have other considerations outside of work. And it makes me so angry you know, that this is framed as a program to help women when you don't see those companies making the same kinds of adjustments to support parents for children of all ages. And so what do you think, um, what what more could be done to foster, I mean, I'm actually, I'm, I'm thinking back to some things that you had said, um, you know, recently at a talk that you gave um, at our house um, in terms of, you know, how so much of the modern economy, um, the modern home, uh, you, you were mentioning, you know, that the height of countertops, um, the modern workplace, the modern educational system is all kind of crafted around um, the male body being the norm um, and female bodies as kind of like second thoughts, afterthoughts, somehow defective versions of male bodies. And so, you know, kind of following up with what you just said, what, what more could we be doing? How should we be thinking about these things? You know, the businesses that 
you know, are both virtue signaling um, their support for abortion, but then also it's a lot cheaper. The bottom line is a uh, is 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 a lot better off when they pay for their employees' abortions rather than prenatal care, birth care, paid family leave, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what more to your mind could and should we be doing in, in that domain? I think the big thing is starting with the assumption that caregiving is a normal part of everybody's life. Um, it's not a a weird, exceptional thing. It's not a thing you can reasonably hope your employees might dodge doing altogether. You know, folks who don't expect to have children, folks who have been told they can't have children, still have friends that they care for when they're sick, still have parents who may be experiencing difficulties with memory, with Alzheimer's, with injury, with you know, broken hips. So part of the question is, how do we build a humane workplace and a humane society that starts with the assumption of everyone has obligations outside of work, not just parents? I worked with the Families Valued program um, devising kind of a paid leave proposal, and part of it was just an assumption that everyone needs some paid leave for caregiving over the course of a year. You know, parents kind of in very obvious ways. My daughter's in preschool, so, you know, she's getting sick with colds and everything, just like everyone else in her class. But, you know, you don't have to be a parent to have a friend who has strep throat and needs you to bring them soup rather than just relying on deliveries. You know, a friend who has a sprained ankle, you know, someone who themselves has their life upended by caring for a member of their family who's hospitalizing, you take a little time off to help spread the load more evenly. And what we do right now is we concentrate that caregiving burden very heavily on parents, very heavily on women, and we deny people the ability to really love their friends. We deny men the chance to use their strength to care for others in a way many men long to do. I, I hear um, overtones of Carter Sneed's books. So someone, another book that you know, um, Zan and I cite um, in, in in our own book, and I know someone who um, you know you, you've you mentioned you know Saturday night in, in your own lecture. You know his his book, what it means to be human, and that really emphasizing dependency, duties, and virtues, and not just talking about liberties and rights. Um, Absolutely, you. Know, I love Carter's book. It was my favorite book the year it came out, and he really starts with that account of being human as we are all needy, not we are very strong. We have these embarrassing needy periods when we're babies, but we grow out of it. We grow into being full people, which I think is often how it's framed and that makes us ashamed of our need. You know, it makes us ashamed of being sick, it makes us ashamed of being injured, it makes us ashamed of being lonely. And Carter's very accurate in saying that we all start needy and that's the foundation of our life and it's the foundation of our relationships. And it's not just this thing we hope to grow past or invent our technology our way past. It's what binds us together. It's part of how we express love for each other is taking care of each other in those moments of need. It's funny that that Ryan followed up with a question about Carter's book because I was about to do the exact same thing um, because what you said <laughs> reminded me a lot of of dependence and just the idea we we talk about it a bit in our book you know we we all are dependent and we kind of think about it as though the unborn baby is just this we can dismiss it as a clump of cells because it needs its mother but what I always think is okay well so does the newborn right and so if exactly the, fact that the, the unborn child needs its mother's body to survive means we can kill it, then why on earth can't we kill a newborn or a toddler? If you leave him alone, he's in trouble, right? Um, or an elderly person or, you know, heck me, if I'm sick in bed with the flu for a week and my husband leaves me alone, I'm toast. So um, I think we, we just don't think about it like that because it, it enables us to justify, um, you know, doing things we, we want to do if we take that, you know, as when we, we are more independent, it justifies um, kind of living autonomously if we take this view. Um, 
And I was I was actually having that exact conversation with someone on Twitter, you know, you know about a newborn is also totally dependent on other people, no less so than a baby. And they said, well, you know, the newborn could be cared for by anyone. But while the baby is in utero, you know, only the mother can do certain things for it. And I think that's you know, obviously true. But it's not the case that because the newborn could be cared for by anyone, we say that the parents have no obligation to that baby or that we just kind of treat all that need as someone could meet it, so no one has a duty to meet it. You know, Each of us has a duty when we see someone in need to step up, even if we don't have a logical or biological connection. It's the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, that you can't get out of these questions by saying, well, you know, is this person my neighbor? They don't live next to me, or it's a big apartment building. Can I really have an obligation to each of these people? Every one of us has an obligation to everyone. And the question is just, where will that obligation be called in? Yeah, I think um, this does this plays into our, our conversation about abortion quite a bit, um, because this is really just the logic of all of it, right? That parents don't have duties to their children, or perhaps that the duty begins right when, when the child's born and not before that. Um, my colleague at, at National Review, Michael Brendan Doherty, had a great piece a couple issues ago in the magazine where he says, look, we all agree that parents have a duty to care for their children. The only difference when it comes to abortion is that some of us don't think it starts until birth. And so it's really just a question of extending that framework of, of parental duty before birth too. And I really like the way, you know, Erica, Carter, you, Leah, many, many pro-lifers have framed this as not a question of the child's rights versus the mother's rights, but rather the fact that parents have a particular duty to care for their children. And we, we talk about this in the book too. It's just very odd the way in which abortion supporters kind of use the fact that the mother's the only body who can sustain her child as a, a validation of her choice to, to kill the child, right? When the exact opposite is the case, that relationship and that that duty, um, that that the fact that only she can provide that care makes her more responsible um, for, for taking care of the child. Um, but to switch gears a bit um, here back to, to abortion more specifically, um, I think a lot of abortion defenders and particularly those who would, who would call themselves feminist um, defend abortion on the grounds that women need this. Um, but I, I know you've written quite the opposite in saying, you know, you kind of sympathize with the idea that women face these various problems that might make abortion seem like a solution, but that abortion fails to solve them. So can you maybe identify um, some of those, those problems that might make abortion seem appealing, but explain how abortion might even exacerbate those issues? I think what's true is that we live in a society that expects abortion of women. Um, and so it's absolutely true that women will find that you know, their choice to have a child, once it's framed as a choice, is not always supported. Um, that you know, the baby has a much easier way of getting the help that he or she needs from their mother than the mother does of having being able to get that help possibly from the baby's father, possibly from their own family, from the people around them. And that's a real injustice. So I think an unexpected pregnancy really can upend your life and you can find that other people aren't meeting you in your need. There was a very moving story about a woman, a young woman uh, whose name was Brooke, who had twins that she didn't abort because of the Texas ban. And she'd considered it. And it was kind of the combination of the ban and the fact that they were twins uh, that led her not to do it. There was something just so surprising about twins that I think it made them very much individuals to her. Um, and then it was kind of unimaginable to move forward with an abortion. But at the same time, you know, the father of the twins made promises to her that he didn't keep. Her own mother made promises to her that her mom didn't keep. And she kind of wound up 
very much alone in supporting them. I think she's a brave, excellent woman. And when I hear that story, I can see how much Brooke did to see that need and step up and how little people around Brooke did. So I think a lot of the question is how do we amplify women's voices to ask for what they need and help them ask for it as insistently as a baby does and have it answered as generously as a mother does. I I love that imagery, as insistently as a baby does. Can you say more concretely what that would look like? Because obviously you you, you don't want mothers, um, you know, crying, um, you know, being as insistent as, you know, the newborn baby crying with a wet diaper or something like that. But I mean, what is your vision for what that looks like both um, kind of as a, as a cultural matter, but then also as a policy matter? Because, you know, I think here there, there, there's a both and response that, you know, we need a culture of solidarity where a lot of um, this charity is just um, almost automatic, right? That you have a family member or a friend in need and you respond. Some of it's institutionalized in, you know, various nonprofits, various ch- charities, pregnancy resource centers, the Little Sisters of the Poor, the Sisters of Life, you know, groups like that. And then some of it is institutionalized via, um, you know, a government program, um, either like a, a policy, like a child tax credit that applies in the womb or, um, you know, a, a, um, a, a paid family leave program, like whatever the case may be. How do you think about it at those kind of three conceptual levels and, th- and what it would look like at all three of those levels. I think when it comes to policy and the role of government, I'm in favor of generosity, flexibility, and dignity. Um, and I think we often fall short of those. You know, To really not be afraid to give parents money. Children are very expensive. There's been no expanded child tax credit proposed where that really solves all the family's financial problems, crowds out the option of work, etc. You know, children cost a lot of money. Children sustain our society. We should give generously to parents because they're doing important work for our country and because their children deserve it. I'm in favor of generous child allowances. I'm in favor of them being flexible. So that means not a voucher for childcare, but just cash that parents can decide what to do with because they know best what their children need. Um, I'm in favor of it being flexible in that parents aren't bound to buy particular products, which is how we run our uh, women and infant support. So during the formula crisis, poorer parents were hit hardest because they get benefits to buy formula with, but they can only buy specific formula brands rather than being given the money they need to make the best decision for their child, especially during a time of shortage, but any time. So they're not locked into a kind of formula cartel as a condition of their aid. And I want to be flexible so that's easy for families to get and dignified so that This is money that represents the trust we're placing in parents to support them in being parents. It doesn't have a thousand bureaucratic hoops. It's not a way to say, here's how we're using this money to have more control over your parenting decision. And it's money that takes seriously the parents' needs. So work requirements of, did you work enough the year you were before you were pregnant so that you deserve this money? It's the child who deserves the support. The child didn't do any work the year before they were born. And the more kind of hurdles we put up, the more the parents who are most in need get left out. So basing things on a prior year's tax return excludes every parent who didn't file a tax return because they didn't need to. We don't require you to if your income is low enough. But then those are the parents who get left out of the payments. Well, there's certainly a lot to debate debate on policy here and to discuss. I think there's some some interesting proposals on the right for for different policies. And I, I typically don't 
I don't uh, like the ideas coming from progressives on this. I don't think they really view the family the right way. I think they have a very disordered view of government, but I certainly see where you're coming from in terms of um, you know, wanting to sustain families. And, and to speak to that from a, a non-policy perspective, uh, could you talk a little bit about both the, the role of men here and, and why you know, we often hear, don't talk about abortion unless you have a uterus, which is silly for a number of reasons, um, not least of which is every child has a father. Um, and pro-abortion men are allowed to say whatever they want, I notice. But what is the role of men in, in decreasing the need for abortion or creating a culture of life? And then, and then secondly, how do you see kind of marriage and the revitalization of a, a family culture, a marriage culture as being important to this? Ryan and I write about this and say, basically, you know, as much as we want to stop abortion and do everything we can policy-wise and law-wise and, and try to, you know, support women in need, we can really only get so far until we, we dig to the roots of the sexual revolution and the bad logic there. Um, so could you speak to that a bit? Yeah, you know, I think a culture that expects extramarital sex to be common, to be normal, is a culture that's always going to have a crisis around children because you can't remove babies from sex. Um, and telling people you can sets them up for a real feeling of betrayal when they find out that's not true. I think one of the things that's really difficult is that a lot of the things we talk about as being part of you know, responsible family life, part of the success sequence, feel completely out of reach for folks. And so you face this question of, am I waiting to get married until I feel like everything in my life is stable enough for marriage? Or am I looking kind of at the poor end of the spectrum of waiting till my housing is stable when it doesn't look like that's ever going to happen. And at the richer end, people saying like, well, I think we need to be able to buy a house. I think we need to be able to have substantial tuition savings for college. And until that's all lined up, you know, a baby is just not an option. And you wind up telling people for large swaths of their life, marriage is impossible. Parenthood is impossible. I think there's some work to be done on the policy side just to make that more doable. We also have to be realistic that people want to be parents, that they want to have children. Um, and so one of my friends who works at a crisis pregnancy center says a lot of the women she works with are people who want to keep their children, but know that this is kind of on paper the wrong choice, You know that there are people waiting for housing vouchers, that they love their children, they want to have them. And everyone around them is saying, you know, you're messing up your life, you have to wait, you're not allowed to have children now. There's a really fascinating work of sociology called Promises I Can Keep about women who have children out of wedlock. And a lot of it isn't just a matter of being irresponsible, um, according to their interviews. It's that they want to love someone. They want to be responsible for someone. It's a completely normal, reasonable desire for a child and for motherhood from people who feel like they're never going to get the chance to do it the right way. And I don't think they're wrong for saying, it can't be the case I'm never allowed to have children. It can't be the case that marriage is totally so remote and so impossible that I have to give up on this. I think the question is, what do we do to make it more possible and to support people who reasonably say the right choice is a child? The right choice is a culture of children. I don't know how to get there, but I know what I want as a child. The Promises I Can Keep book was really influential in me in, in helping me realize that like, one of the problems that we face is not um, unintended pregnancy. Um, but that many non-marital pregnancies are intended. Um, and, you know, what do you do when um, you don't have marriageable men, when you don't have um, uh, women who think that they are, there are men in their community to whom they could be married? And so, you know, the title of the book, Promises I Could Beat, was that the promise was going to be to the child yeah. um, rather than to um, the husband. 
Um, and it's a huge cultural problem that, you know, the campaign to prevent teen and unwed pregnancy was successful on the teen pregnancy part. It was not successful on the unwed part. Uh, it, it, it seems from from my understanding of the social science to have delayed unwed pregnancy, you know, past the teenage years into, you know, the mid to late 20s. Um, but until we rebuild the marriage culture, um, and, and part of that's going to be, you know, um, improving male labor force participation, improving job options, uh, particularly for low wage males, uh, for people who ha don't have college degrees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to remember that kind of unplanned pregnancies um, are not necessarily unwelcome ones, including for, for the people experiencing them from the beginning. A lot of people are kind of taking a laissez-faire approach to contraception because they feel torn. You know, they feel torn between what's responsible and what they want. And as much as I want everyone to kind of have a healthy marriage culture, I can't deny there's something healthy about people saying, we know we want babies. You know, we don't know how to get there, but we can't give up that desire for children, that desire for family. I think that's a kind of a healthy sign in the midst of a, a difficult culture. And, and I think even your point there about unplanned, in general, many of life's greatest blessings are unplanned, right? And you can think of this, you know, either as serendipity or as providence, um, but that you, there's so much about our technocratic, controlled, planned, um, you know, industrialized 21st century way of living um, that we forget that, you know, many of life's greatest um, experiences are not things that we controlled, manipulated, planned, um, and how to have a culture that's open to the unbidden. You know, that, that's another phrase, um, if I remember correctly, that Carter mm -hmm. uses in his book. Um, and to be honest, children are always a little bit unplanned, even if you're kind of aggressively tracking your basal body temperature and timing everything right. Because my husband and I were planning to have a baby for years before we succeeded in bringing one of our children to term. You know, all our plans didn't have any real relationship to when we were pregnant or whether we were able to carry a baby to term. All we had was an intention. Our, our plan was not a guarantee of getting what we wanted. And of course, once you have a child, you, know, you learn that plans are kind of suggestions. Um, that just the reality of another person means that you can't make plans and guarantee you'll stick to them. You have to be a little bit adaptable, a very big part patient, and just responsive to another person rather than too attached to your own plan. So um, one of the things that we like to do to, to wrap out each episode is to, you know, ask someone, you know, practical advice that they could give to listeners, realizing that, you know, most of our listeners do not have our vocations, right? I mean, your vocation, you're a public speaker, you're a public writer, you're in the public square um, shaping the public debates on these issues. And a lot of people, that's not their vocation. But what is your advice on how people, given you know their vocations in life, could implement some of the ideas you have on where the pro-life movement and where American culture needs to go from here? All right. I'll give a policy piece of advice, an almsgiving piece of advice, and then a culture piece of advice. Awesome. That's great. Policy-wise, you know, call whoever your local rep is. If they're a pro-life politician, tell them you want a full culture of life with support for parents when they have their children. If they're not a pro-life politician, ask them to be, uh, but then also say that you really want to see them support the children who are going to be born as a result of abortion bans and ask them for fuller support for parents. Do a little research, pick a, a family uh, 
leave plan or a child allowance plan you like and then ask them about it. On a almsgiving uh, plan, make a plan to buy a box of diapers every month as part of you know, a grocery run and drop it off at your local crisis pregnancy center. Just have part of your budget set aside, even in that small way, to support other people's children. Because you don't know how that child is going to grow up and interact with your life. Everyone's child is your child, too. This might be the person your child marries. This might be the person who takes care of you when you're old. And you get to help them now. Culture-wise, you know, think about what you can do to have need be more visible to you in your community. Whether that's a volunteering thing you take on so you know how to help people, whether that's looking for local mutual aid networks, or whether it's going to your parish and saying, I think we should set up, you know, a babysitting pool where a number of the young people or young single people volunteer to do babysitting for parents because that's part of how we all take care of each other. And we want there to be something we can say immediately. If a parent says, I'm struggling as a parent, what is our parish going to say in response? What am I going to say in response? What do I have to give? I think it's always much easier to decide what you have to give when you have someone in front of you making the ask than when you're thinking about this purely abstractly. So the question is, how do you invite someone to make that ask of you? Well, thank you for those very practical thoughts to close out here. I love that advice. Um, and thank you again so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative.